0: Finishing up our little three-part series on Mystery Babylon. Over the last two weeks, we have walked through chapters 17 and 18 of Revelation. And in doing so, we've sought to uh, establish some elements of identity, some elements of, of uh, certainly we've, we've seen the destruction of Babylon. And as we've walked through it, I've made no secret about the fact that I believe Babylon to be a literal city as well as a system. That if we were going to identify Babylon itself, that the identity of Babylon would not so much fall at the feet of one particular city or one particular institution as it relates to today, but rather it would fall upon a spirit that has guided the operation of mankind, operation of the secular world, operation of that world outside of God, um, really since the beginning or since we might say the flood and the Tower of Babel where the beginning of of that that concept of Babylon truly uh, had its inception. And today I'd like to make my case for that a little bit more. I've walked you through the text. I've taught you what is. I'd like to make a bit of a case today for Babylon being what I've said it is. I'm going to show you some things, connect some dots, and perhaps help us to see how what we see even in the world as it re- as it relates today might lead to this final concept of Babylon. So I've taught that the the. The idea of Babylon is a pagan, religious, economic, and political system, the merging of economics, politics, and religion into a single idea, into a single economy, into a single functioning government-type system, and... That has been my contention based upon what we see not just in Babylon as it's taught in Revelation 17 and 18, but in what we see throughout history as it relates to the concept of Babel. It was not too long ago in our evening series in Jeremiah 7, where we took time to trace what we would often call the mother-child cult from its inception at the Tower of Babel all the way to modern pagan implications Uh, and implementations found in witchcraft, found in Near Eastern mysticism, uh, found in the history of the Roman Catholic Church, and even in many cases, the modern evangelical church. And we did that because as we were studying in Jeremiah, we came across this idea of the Queen of Heaven. And we wanted to talk about this concept of the Queen of Heaven. So if you, did, if you were not here for that message, if you've not seen that message, it is online, it's on YouTube, it's, it's, it's on the podcast, and it's in Jeremiah 7. And I walk, I basically trace you through some of the history. I'm going to give some of that again today, though. So those of you who were there, some of this is going to be a little bit of a repeat for you, but then we're going to take it a step farther. I remember saying in that Jeremiah 7 message, I wish I could give you more. Well, today I get to give you a little bit more of the implications of Babel, of what happened on that day. Much of what I'm going to tell you today is I'm going to take the concepts as they are presented in the Bible, and then I'm going to add historical and church tradition to it. And I, I, um, I say that outright, and I say that up front, that we are going to be at least for the first part of the message, putting pieces together. You are, as always, free to disagree with me on these things. I'm going to be taking elements of church tradition. I'm going to be taking elements of, um, um, of historical paganism and historical cults as we see them. And I'm going to show you how they can and might connect together. If you want to leave it all at the door, that's certainly fine. But I want to uh, introduce you to these things so that you can be aware of what's going on. In tracing this pagan religious system of the mother-child cult in Jeremiah 7, we saw that things religiously have never really changed per se. They have only mutated from manifestation to manifestation of the same errors. Solomon, of course, said in Ecclesiastes, there's nothing new under the sun, and it's very true. What we find in pagan religions today is the exact same thing that that we, we can find in pagan religions going back millennia. Right, it's the same concepts. They change names, they change forms, they change um, uh, 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 different elements of of how these gods are worshipped. Sometimes they're not called gods at all. Um, uh, Sometimes it's man himself that is the god, but it's all the same type, er, uh, the same errors, the same false gods under different names. The same apostasy. And today we're going to trace what I believe to be the vehicle of that error throughout history. Comprises this religious, political, economic system intertwined into various institutions over time. And it's no less of a reality today than it was in the days of Babel. In fact, we're still seeing this same idea, pervasive, even in our culture, that we could see all the way back to Babel. So as I mentioned, those of you that were here for that Jeremiah 7, the first bit of this is going to be review, and then we're going to take it through Uh, a new direction. So we begin in Genesis chapter 11. And in Genesis chapter 11, excuse me, Uh, uh, in Genesis chapter 11, we read this, And the whole earth was of one language and of one speech. And it came to pass, as they journeyed from the east, That they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. And they said one to another, Go to, let us make brick, and burn them throughly. And they had brick for stone, and slime had they for mortar. And they said, Go to, let us build us a city and a tower, whose top may reach unto heaven, and let us make us a name, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower, which the children of men builded. And the Lord said, Behold, this people is one and they have all one language. And, they, uh, and this they begin to do, and now nothing will be restrained from them which they have imagined to do. So our study originates with the origins of Babel, the origins of Babylon in Genesis 11. We are in the days after the flood, and Noah's sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, came off the ark and were called by God to scatter and to repopulate the earth. But they did not do so. Rather, they chose to remain one people. They chose to remain in one one place described in Genesis chapter eleven, verse two as a plain in the land of Shinar. This region, the plain of Shinar, is the ancient name for what would become, would become known as Mesopotamia, the fertile land between the Tigris and Euphrates. This would eventually house many cities, including Babylon in its day. Uh, today, it is generally the area of Baghdad. Iraq, as far as where Babylon used to be, the entire fertile crescent there between the Tigris and the Euphrates. The Bible tells us that they dwelt there, and one day they conspired not just to be there, but to build a tower, whose top may reach unto heaven. They sought to build this tower, and to make for themselves, the Bible says, a name. And what we find here, though it is subtle, is a terrible rebellion against God. Firstly, of course, as we mentioned, they are openly and purposefully defying God's command to scatter and to repopulate the earth. They said, no, we don't want to do that. So we are going to build a tower. This is going to be a unifying symbol so that we don't scatter. This is the, 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 the tower was a symbol that we are going to stay together. And of course, the fact that they wanted to build it unto heaven to make a name for themselves reflects a determination that they are by this, not just hoping to remain unified, but to challenge the authority of God to challenge the rule of God. The, that's the implications of the tower of Babel. And it is here that God sought to hinder man's progress, and he sought to hinder man's progress by 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 confusing the languages thus creating individual cultures. And as long as there, was, uh, there were cultures and there was nationalism uh, the, and, and there was this language barrier, it would slow down the process of mankind attempting to unite because as mankind unites, he inevitably unites unto a particular end. And that end is that mankind unites, and as they are deceived by the devil, because this is, this is very common, right? They will unite against God. And that's what we've been reading about in Revelation, have we not? We've been reading about a system whereby mankind is uniting against God. We have already read various elements. We'll continue to read more, um, not next week, but the week after, about the the final days uh, where mankind gathers together in the valleys of Jezreel and the valleys of Jehoshaphat on the day of what we call Armageddon. We've already read, right? We read in chapter 14 about all of the people being gathered together in, uh, for, for the Lord to thrust in His sickle and to glean the earth and to throw them into the winepress of His wrath. We already read about the sixth vial in Revelation chapter 16 that was opened. And when the sixth vial opened, the Euphrates River dried up so that the kings of the east could come to the great battle of the day of the Lord so that they might be gathered together in the valley of... Jezreel in the valley of Armageddon, right? Armageddon, that's the mountain of Megiddo. Megiddo being on on the, the edge of the valley of Jezreel. So all of this we've read about already. What's going on there? Man is uniting himself against the Lord. We see this going all the way back to Babylon, that this is what they did, so the Lord confused the languages to thwart this rebellion. Now, in order to understand the deeper spiritual concepts of where this idea of Babel began, I want us to go back one more chapter to Genesis chapter 10. And in Genesis chapter 10, beginning in verse 1, the Bible says this, Now these are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham and Japheth. And unto them were born after the flood, were were sons born, excuse me, after the flood. The sons of Japheth, Gomer, and Magog, and Madi, and Javan, and Tubal, and Meshech, and Tirus. The sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz, and Riphath, and Togarmah. And the sons of Javan, Elisha, uh, Elisha, and Tarshish, Kittim, and Dodanim. And these were the isles of the Gentiles divided in their lands, every one after his tongue, after their families in their nations. And the sons of Ham, Cush, and Mitzrayim, and Phut, and Canaan, and the sons of Cush, Seba, and Havilah, and Sabta, and Reamah, and Sabteca. And the sons of Reamah, Sheba, and Dadan, and Cush begat Nimrod. He began to be a mighty one in the earth, and he uh, he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Wherefore it is said, even as Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord, and the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, and Erech and Akkad and Kinah, in the land of Shinar. So here we find the first generations after the flood, and we trace the lines through Japheth, Shem, and Ham. I apologize, I, I have a. Um, Uh, there's been a little bit of a technical error those are supposed to have names on them they don't so i'm just going to leave that off here for a moment i I had a little generational chart to give you it it worked last time there must have been a, a problem in transition but um as i as i tried to transition it over but let me describe it for you shem ham and japheth are born of noah Out of the line of Ham, we find Cush, Mizraim, Phut, and Canaan. Mizraim is the Hebrew word for Egypt. And so we find here that, that the Egyptian lineage and we find here the Canaanite lineage are in this line of Ham. And Cush had several children, one of which was named Nimrod. Now we go through this lineage, and then whenever you see the lineage stop, for whatever reason, whenever you see a genealogy stop and there's some information given about a person within that genealogy, that matters, Right? All of these other names were just looked over. Talked about Cush and talked about Mitzrayim and talked about foot and talked about Canaan and nothing was said about any of them. And then we get to Nimrod and the Bible calls him a great one, a mighty one in the earth and a mighty hunter before the Lord. And the Bible says that the beginning of his kingdom was Babel and Erech and Akkad and Kinah in the land of Shinar. So he went into this land of Shinar and he began a kingdom and the beginning of his kingdom was Babel. Now, we've not been along after the flood very long at this point. Nimrod is the grandson uh, of Ham, the great grandson of Noah. All of the cities over which Nimrod ruled were in the land of Shinar. Now we would expect this since they did not scatter. They all remained in this region. That we get a history of Babel specifically lends to us credibility that of the four cities which, uh, of which Nimrod's kingdom began, Babylon, Babel, was the chiefest. To this end, Babel was the place where the people chose to build that tower unto the heavens. Now, there's not much more in the Bible that's said explicitly about Nimrod, but there is an extremely unified tradition of information in regard to what Nimrod began and what he came to symbolize in the pagan world. This unified tradition can be found in, in any number of, of um, pagan traditions throughout time you can find it in egyptian history you can find it in sumerian history you can find it in uh, uh, history of, of any number of pagan cultures you can find it today um, in uh, satanism and wicca and and the various pagan religions that are still uh, that still have a, a great influence today and because of this unified tradition i'm comfortable telling it to you today This tradition tradition can be traced through history, including the Bible. I mentioned already that this thing started when we got to Jeremiah 7, a month or so ago in Jeremiah, because we saw the concept of the Queen of Heaven. And as we trace the concept of the Queen of Heaven, it finds its roots in this same tradition, a tradition, a pagan tradition which continues even today. So, Babel became the center of a false worship system according to this tradition where men sought to exalt themselves above God and the name of God in Babel the system began with worship of Nimrod himself as a god king the idea of this tower the idea that we are merging our religion they often call them ziggurats right the idea of towers that reach up into the heavens merging a religious system with a political system with an economic system whereby the system was one religion was Was used to enforce political dogmas and political uh, power was used to enforce religious dogmas. This idea Nimrod exalting himself above God in the name of God, the people exalting themselves above God in the name of God. And tradition states that Nimrod met with a violent death at the hands of other people in power in the kingdom, at which point he had a wife named Semiramis who took power. And she did this by attributing to her husband the attributes of Messiah. Messiah would have been known to the people. They would have known all the way back to Genesis 3.15 that there was going to come the seed of the woman that would crush the head of the serpent. Uh, they would have known already the promises of the virgin birth. We can see this throughout history as we, as we study the traditions. And so she claimed him to be Messiah who died willingly in order to fulfill the prophecy of God in Genesis 3.15 that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent and that Nimrod was resurrected as God had promised in the form of her son whose name is Tammuz. And if, you, if you've ever done a study in Ezekiel, if you recall what Ezekiel is brought out of uh, a body in vision to the temple where he sees all the pagan worship in the temple of God, one of the things that he sees are the women weeping for Tammuz. It would be a 40-day Weeping, which is, by, by the way, an a, a important number in Scripture, right? Forty days. There would be forty days of weeping for, for Tammuz, after which they, they believed him to be resurrected. Thus, Semiramis became the holy mother of the resurrected Messiah, and she was given God status next to her son, this spiritual apostasy would take, the form of, uh, would, would take form in any number of religious systems whereby there was a mother-child cult, a merging of political power, economic power, religious power into a church-state system whereby the king is God, the state is God, the people themselves uh, are God by denying God altogether. And this system of the power of the state the necessity of the economy the zeal of religious fear and devotion to manipulate the masses to exalt man by extension satan has functioned in any number of uh, in any number of cultures throughout history this is how egypt was right egypt was a god man system pharaoh was a god the system ran as a way to give him his due, right, and and, um, Pharaoh's power and the the state's power was was Pharaoh's power and the Pharaoh's power was the state's power and it was all enforced together. We can see it in any number of cultures and in any number of ways. This is what Babel represents in Genesis chapter 11. I'm going to focus in a little bit more on this mother-child cult as I did in Jeremiah 7 before we move on past it. The reason why I can tell you these things so confidently this morning is because this mother-child cult is found in nearly every civilization throughout the generations. In Canaan, it was the virgin mother Semiramis and her son Tammuz. In ancient Germanic culture, they worshipped the virgin mother Erta and her son. In the Scandinavian culture, she was called Disa with her son. In the Egyptian culture, the mother was Isis and her son was Horus, the reincarnation of the slain father Osiris. In India, the virgin mother was called Devaki and her son Krishna, also Isi and her son Iswara. In Asia, the virgin mother was Sybil and her son uh, Deoias. I always struggle pronouncing this one, it's Deoias. In Rome, the virgin mother was Fortuna and her son Jupiter Pur. In Greece, the virgin mother was Irene and her son Pluto. In China, it was Xing Mu and her child in her hands as well. And when I say this, you you might ask, wait, Pastor, don't we have this too? I mean, isn't isn't this the gospel? Isn't this the same as the virgin Mary and Jesus, the Son of God? No. That's not what we have. What we have is a woman who is a virgin used as a vessel to bring God in flesh. The woman is blessed as the vessel through whom the God-man comes. And that's it. In the mother-child apostasy, the virgin mother is made divine as well, given co-redemptress status with the son. She is made divine. This is what constitutes the mother-child cult. In the Bible, the virgin mother... ...holds no such status. She is a sinner, she is fully human, and functions only as the blessed vessel through whom Messiah comes. To this end, you will have gathered that as we look at the various pagan systems in every culture, the Roman Catholic Church falls within it. The Roman Catholic Church does not fall under the list of faithful. It falls into the list of apostate worship systems that have blasphemed the name of God by following a false religion of Babel in this mother-child cult of elevating the woman to this co-redemptive status going all the way back in pagan worship system to this counterfeit mother-child cult system that is intended to blur the lines between what God was actually going to do through Mary and Jesus and intended to cause a, a, that slight diversion into error whereby the pagan system could function properly. is it any wonder then that as we study Roman Catholic history not only do we see a mother-child cult but we see the merging of political economic and religious power the attempt to bring it all under one envelope one system this is the spirit of Babel now let me say this before we continue does this mean every individual Catholic is a cultist no it does not I've known many Catholics who have accepted Jesus Christ by grace through faith. But, as I always say, those who do, do it in spite of their religious devotion, not because of it. In spite of the system within which they operate, not because of it. Because the system within which they operate itself is apostate. And it has been since very early on in in the church's history. They have been a part of any number of evil systems. They have been a part of persecuting the true church of God for generations, for hundreds and thousands of years. And we need to know that. This is why the Roman Catholic Church sought in its time of greatest power to merge itself with the political powers of the day, where they would appoint holy Roman emperors, where they would hold sway over the political powers that be where they would seek to keep politics under its thumb. It should be noted as well that as we look at this false system, mother child cult, as we look at this false system, the merging of political, economic, and religious power, Islam falls under this system as well, does it not? Their caliphate system, going all the way back, if you want to study the Ottoman Empire before it fell at the end of World War I, and what the Ottoman Empire represented. What what ISIS was attempting to do is ISIS was an apocalyptic uh, group uh, attempting to bring in the the next caliphate. The caliphate is a a merging of a religious, economic, and political system. Everywhere where we see the fingerprints of Babylon, we see the merging of a political, religious, and economic system. Whereby the state is able to enforce the religion and the religion is used to keep people loyal to the state whereby individuality and individual choices are broken down in deference to the collective. And we're going to see that more as we continue. Finally, let me say this as well. Just because a person says that they're atheist or secular does not mean that they're not religious. As a matter of fact, in the humanistic manifestos, that I read to you, I don't know, it was probably probably six or eight months ago, in the humanistic manifestos of the early 1900s, they called it the religion of secular humanism. And it is a religion. And what do we see as it relates to this religion today? The secular humanists are attempting to merge their religious ideas with economics and with politics to enforce their secular humanistic dogma on culture through the power of the state. And so when this book becomes a hate crime as it is in Canada to some degree what is happening there? The religion of secular humanism is using the power of the state to enforce its dogmas. That's Babylon. It's the same marks. It's the same problems. It's the same issues. It's the same thing. And that's what I want to show you next. I want to show you that that these secular humanistic institutions that are operating today are babylon in my opinion this is babylon just as we could say the roman catholic church is is, is a part of babylon and many many people in our circles believe that that is babylon and I, i'm comfortable with that i just think that babylon's bigger than that because i see it in islam because i see it in secular humanism because i see it in the various organizations that have Arisen in the last century. This is the United Nations meditation room at the UN headquarters in New York City. This room opened in 1957 and consider the description of the room from the UN website. The man who created it said this. This house must have one room dedicated to silence. I remember very distinctly one night when I heard... That uh, he, had been working, uh, he had been working most of the night, and about 2 o'clock in the morning, he called some of his aides, and this being the man who started this room, uh, he called some of his aides in, and they assumed that there had been some bad news from one of the fronts where the United Nations Emergency Forces were then located, but he said, I want to go down to the meditation room. And he took them down to the meditation room, and it was about, as I said, 2 o'clock in the morning. And there he spent considerable time directing his painters to put just the precise coat of paint on the walls of that meditation room so the light would be just as he wanted it. So he had a very close feeling about the spiritual, and he felt that it should be the center of the United Nations, He had a special crew of painters working on the meditation room that evening. He said, we want to bring back in this room the stillness which we have lost in our streets and in our conference rooms and to bring it back in a setting in which no noise would impinge on our imagination. He banned chairs and replaced them with benches. In the center of the room, he placed a a six-and-a-half-ton rectangular block of iron ore polished on the top and illuminated from above by a single spotlight. This block, which was a gift from the king of Sweden and a Swedish mining company, was the only symbol in the room. Uh, Mr. This guy's name described it as a meeting of the light of the sky and the earth. It is the altar to the God of all. We want this massive altar to give the impression of something more than temporary. And so we have this chapel found in the United Nations. And the intent of this chapel in the United Nations, uh, notice that, that the symbols are somewhat nondescript. It's about silence. It's about silence in order to give this altar to the God of all. I recall reading in Daniel 11 about the 11th horn and that he would worship the God of forces. Now, again, I'm not trying to make you conspiratorial this morning, but... A part of the UN art collection is this very famous statue. The statue of a man beating his sword into a plowshare. This is intended to reflect a promise that was given by God to the nation of Israel. It's found in Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 through 4. It's found in Micah chapter 4, verse 3. That in the days of the reign of Messiah upon the earth, there would be peace. And that this peace would be symbolized by man beating his sword's into plowshares right this is a biblical analogy it's a biblical illusion however this is the stated purpose of the UN right now am I saying that the UN is sitting around reading the Bible and saying we are we're going to be the 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 tool of Babylon no I'm not but this is this is this is what mankind drifts toward right this is what mankind drifts toward no war is a good thing we don't want war nobody wants war But the idea that there's an organization that insists that they can be the organization through which man's swords are beaten into plowshares is a Babylonian way of thinking, right? It's a Babel way of thinking that we can do what God says only he can do, that we can overcome man's fallibilities and man's foibles outside of the God of the Bible, That God has promised to be the one to bring in millennial peace, and we are going to be the ones to bring in peace. We are going to be the ones that are going to bring about the system that beats our swords into plowshares. Attached to the UN is a council called the Unity and Diversity World Council. Attached to this council is a unity and diversity interfaith ministry led by a graduate of Harvard Seminary named Leland Stewart. In an interview with him, he said this, Unity in Diversity Council is a worldwide coordinating body looking toward a time in which there will be a one single organized energy of networking throughout the planet. I am very interested in a harmony of all religions, not just to give birth to a new religion, but rather to produce, let's call it a universal religious outlook through which there can be a new connecting of all cultures, all religions, all races. It is very interesting. The Motto of the United States from the beginning has been "E pluribus unum," out of the many, one. The biblical worldview of our founders brought about a system whereby the individual is elevated, individual liberties, individual conscience, the dictates of your own conscience, the liberty to be yourself the motto of these, uh, these uh, um, larger organizations is this idea, unity in diversity, multiculturalism. Again, I'm not saying by any means that the idea of, of a melting pot is a bad thing. But the multiculturalism that we're seeing in Europe today is not come and be a part of our values. It's everyone's values are the same. And it's causing Europe to collapse under its own weight. And the only way that that can be brought into a solution is by a unifying philosophy whereby we all compromise and we all come to an agreement. Let's call it a universal religious outlook. And all the way back to the the inception of this unity and diversity interfaith ministry, they knew that the only way to bring this about was to bring religions together. The former UN director, Dr. Ernst Winter, said this in an interview. He said this In this growing consciousness of sharing godliness and looking for a leader to lead everyone into this new heaven, the UN plays a very important role in as much as it is a support system for any group that seeks to support these matters. Now, are these people going into their closets and making sacrifices to Satan? Probably not. Are they a part of the system? that we see collapse in Revelation 17 and 18. I'm contending that they are. I'm contending that this is the system that we're watching collapse. A religious system, the woman that rides the beast, the beast has seven horns, or seven heads, those seven heads, five of which were before John, one of which was in John's day, one of which is after John's day. This woman has ridden the heads on top of this beast for a very long time. The eighth beast is a beast that comes out of these other seven beasts. It's like them. The epitome of them. When this man, Dr. Ernest Winter, says we're looking for a leader to lead us into this new heaven, and the UN is, is, is on this, they're not looking for a mess- the Messiah. They're looking for an anti-Messiah. You say, so aha, it's the UN. It's not Rome. It's not this. No, no, no. It's not just the UN. And that's what I'm trying to show you. What I'm trying to show you is it's not just the UN. The UN is, is in line with Babylon. As the Roman Catholic Church, we just said, was in line with Babylon. As Islam is in line with Babylon. As secular humanism is in line with Babylon. But things get even crazier when we consider the EU, the European Union. Strasbourg, France, the seat of the European Union. They have a parliament building which bears this very post-modernistic design. It actually appears unfinished and people have questioned this. People said it's, it's meant to symbolize the unfinished nature of the building of Europe itself. Interestingly enough, though, and I apologize, this is slightly conspiratorial, so take this with whatever you want. It does bear a striking resemblance to the most popular picture of the Tower of Babel that's ever been painted, where you have one side of the building that is unfinished as the tower is built. Now again, I'm not a big fan of conspiracies, although sometimes that line that gets drawn gets a little muddy. I'm not encouraging you to do that. I'm not trying to bring you into that this morning. But could it be that the aspirations of the European Union, not by intention per se, I mean, although this seems pretty blatant, it'll get worse in a moment, but could it be that the aspirations of the EU like the UN before it and like Hitler before him and like Napoleon before him and like the Roman Catholic Church before them and like the Roman Empire of John's day before them and going all the way back through Egypt and all the way back to these, 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 uh, um, these religions and, and, and elements of the past are all simply just the same thing. They're all in line to the same way of thinking and that's what I'm trying to that's the point I'm trying to make this morning. Now across a small body of water from that parliament building in Strasbourg lies four more buildings that comprise the European Union. They're all named after prominent politicians. From left to right on this, we have Louis Weiss, Winston Churchill, Pierre Fillman, and Vaclav Havel. Those are the names of the four buildings. In front of these buildings are numerous statues that would seek to represent various concepts important to the vision of the European Union. And in front of Winston Churchill, in front of the Winston Churchill building, we have a very unique statue. What does that look like to you? That's a woman riding a beast. Now, this beast does not have seven heads. This beast does not have ten horns. But this building is in front of the Winston Churchill building in the EU. It is a woman riding a beast. I don't understand that. I don't understand, the, why, 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 what's the significance of that? Why would they put that up? I, I don't know if you've ever seen, I, I grew up in Colorado, Denver International Airport. It was a big deal when it was being built. It was being built so far outside the city. I don't know if you've ever looked online at the murals that are in Denver International Airport. They are apocalyptic. They are terrifying. They are They are literally crazy. These murals, you can go through DIA. I've I've gone through DIA DIA, any number of times. You can go and look at these murals. These murals are evil. And they're hanging all over. What what is going on there? What is going on there? What is going on? Are are all of these people going into their closets and and sacrificing cats to Satan? uh, No. No. But there's a deception here. And it's not, they're not being very subtle, though, are they? I mean, this is pretty overt stuff. Let's talk about Geneva, Switzerland. Let's talk about the science facility called CERN. It's a nuclear research facility. Geneva, Switzerland, of course, a, a place of neutrality, founded by 12 countries in Europe, intended to be this place where, where uh, the whole world can come to do science, right? It's a place that does science. CERN is famous for having their LHC, right? That Large Hadron. Cylinder um, uh, collider, excuse me, large hadron collider where they collide neutrons and electrons and they were looking for what they called the God particle, the Higgs boson, right? Just a science facility, an institution for the good of mankind. Sitting in front of this science facility is this. Prominent statue. I introduce you to the Hindu god Shiva, also called the destroyer. This false and evil God is said to have the duty of destroying all worlds and ending the creation to dissolve it to nothingness. But what's interesting about the Hindu God Shiva is that the Hindu God Shiva is not seen as an evil God. Rather, the Hindu God Shiva, the destroyer, is seen as a God that destroys the world and tears it down to rebuild it anew, to rebuild it in a new order, destroy all things that they might be rebuilt better. Through the destruction, he facilitates a smooth transition from one stage of life to another, that things have to be destroyed in order for them to be rebuilt. Of course, this can be seen in the philosophy of communism as it played out in the Soviet Union, as it played out in China, right? We, they, they destroy, they kill millions of people in order that they may rebuild it. It's that same philosophy. So if we see the fingerprints of this philosophy everywhere, if we see the fingerprints of a church state system, whether that church is secular humanism or whether that church is Islam or whether that church is a church that's, that claims to represent the God of the Bible, if we see all of these things and we see their fingerprints everywhere, can I just, can I just suggest that maybe what's happening is not that Babylon is any single entity, but that Babylon is a spirit, in the way that Antichrist is a spirit, but then he's going to take a form in the last days. And I believe Babylon will take a form in the last days as well. But can I suggest to you that there's something going on here, that there's a spirit of deception, and that it's not necessarily hidden, but it's operating. And it's it's a very part of the fabric of this world and how it operates. And that we can see it, in these attempts at what we might call unity. Now, all of this being said, it's important that we understand in both of these chapters, Babylon is being called a great city in chapters 17 and 18. And I believe it's important for us to see Babylon as a physical city, which will be the capital of this apostate system. Again, these are my beliefs. This is what I believe. I believe Revelation 17 and 18 are speaking of the same thing uh, and and that it is going to be a city that once again represents the, the, the climax of this system. Since the beginning, Christians have always wanted to identify the city that is Mystery Babylon and have been quite divided on the topic. And it's here where we need to allow our study to become prominent in our interpretation. I've given you a lot of circumstantial evidence today. And again, circumstantial evidence is what it is. If you want to just say, okay, all of that's coincidence, all of that's just whatever it is, people just don't know what they're doing, that's fine. And I'm I'm fine with that. I'm really fine with that what we care about is what the Bible has to say. We need to allow our study to become prominent in our interpretation. Revelation 17, 18 told us specifically that this woman is the great city Babylon which reigneth over the kings of the earth. We learned from Revelation 17 that this woman was drunk with the blood of the martyrs. She, she persecuted the saints. We learned from Revelation 17 that she will ride Antichrist into power and that she's always sat on kingdoms. We learned from Revelation 18 that the kings of the earth committed fornication with her That the merchants of the earth were made rich by her delicacies and mourned her destruction. We learn from Revelation 18 that the people of God are called to come out from her and not to be a partaker in her sins. To this end, I believe we're dealing with two concepts here. First, that we're dealing with a mystical concept, the spirit of Babylon. And that's the spirit that still functions today that we talked about last week that we need to come out from. That's the part that is, that, that, that is the spirit that reigns in every generation that is kind of the foundation of secular humanism and of what mankind is without God. This is what he is without God. All of these things that we've seen, that's what man is without the God of the Bible. But then there's also, I believe, a physical idea to this. A literal city that is or will be built. A city that embodies everything that Babel once stood for. As mankind, as the barriers that God has created to keep mankind from unifying break down, right? Language barriers are broken. There's no language barrier anymore. And now we're getting this multicultural idea where Emmanuel Macron, the president of of France, said just last week in a speech directed specifically at our president, he said nationalism is the exact opposite of patriotism and nationalism is the greatest problem on the world scene, is effectively what he said the idea that we actually care about our nation above others that there is a do you see what happens though as nationalism breaks down now nationalism has been taken toward evil ends right the ussr nationalism toward evil ends nazi germany nationalism toward evil ends I'm not saying nationalism is good thing in and of itself at all But the idea that you care about your country was something that God put in place as a means by which to really keep us from this very danger that we see play out in Revelation 17, 18. So it should not surprise us that as we get toward the last days, nations, borders, uh, these things are going to break down. That there's going to be a compulsion to continue to unify until such time as there is unity. Don't be surprised at this. And once again, unity itself is not evil. Coming from evil or coming from unity will be evil, we know that. Because when man comes together there's no end to his imagination, right? But it in of itself is not evil. Unity in of itself is not evil. It's what can come from it. It's man's tendencies as it relates to it, right? So we're seeing this happen. Likely the idea then, I believe, is that there will be a literal city that embodies everything that Babel once stood for. It will be a political, economic, spiritual center of the world. But it will also, as we consider it at the end of Revelation, be hated by those in the world who are loyal to the beast because the beast will want to get beyond the system, get above the system Because Mystery Babylon will aspire, as it has always aspired, to become the dominant force in the world, and Antichrist will want to become that dominant force himself. To this end, the question is asked, what might this city be? It's very important to note that entire books have been written arguing for or against certain cities. And they all wrap around the idea of attempting to draw out various physical and spiritual characteristics of the city and then pegging certain cities or certain countries with those characteristics. And so some believe the United States best fit the model because in this age we are the economic powerhouse of the world. We are lavish. We are gaudy. We are proud. We are the hub of commerce, of exchange. We are the hub of military power. But of course we know all of these things could change in a moment, right? All of these things could change in a moment. The U.S. is by no means... Uh, um, Right now, fits as a spiritual descriptor. The United States has never been the hub through whom the martyrdom of the saints has taken place. So we don't really fit that right now, as, as, as the, the, the idea may be. The U.S. is not a nation drunk with the blood of the saints. Uh, individual cities. I don't know that there's any, anything about the United States that in reputation, historically, we could say fits that description. Many believe, going back to the Reformers, as I've said many times, that the Catholic Church is Mystery Babylon. Um, uh, Many of the Reformers called the Pope Antichrist, uh, and they did that because they believed that the Catholic Church is Mystery Babylon. They believed that it was the the vessel through whom Antichrist would come, and yet then we saw the Catholic Church lose a a great deal of its power. Uh, This one does make quite a bit more sense. We see a Roman Catholic Church uh, that throughout history has, by and large, been an apostate pagan religion, mimicking the truths of the Bible. We see their desire to merge the state with with the, the church, like they had for about a thousand years there of the Middle Ages. They have their own country, right? The Vatican is its own country. They have their own seat of power that no other country can really touch. They are lavish, they're wealthy, they're gaudy. The Roman Catholic Church is guilty of more martyrdoms of, true, uh, martyrdoms of true believers than any other entity on the earth through the Inquisitions. The Vatican is in Rome, which has historically been known as the City of Seven Hills. Uh, many have connected that to the idea that the woman sits on the seven hills. We've already talked about that in several different contexts. But once again, I do believe that this theory is a little bit short sighted. I think the Roman Catholic Church is a good example of Mystery Babylon, but I think it simply falls into the timeline, the trend. It is one of several different institutions that could have have been, or or still could be, the end times idea, but I believe that it's just a part, it's just a part of the fingerprints. It's just a part of the whole. And that's the reason why um, I gave you this stuff about the UN and the EU, because we, we see even outside of the Catholic Church, we see this stuff happening, right? We see the goals of the UN align with Babylon. We see the goals of the EU align with Babylon. And, and, and so when we see that and we see the goals of all of these various institutions align with the same ideal, then we might think that the ideal is a little bit broader than just the Roman Catholic Church. Islam, their goal, to create a new caliphate, to merge politics and religion, right? That's, that's in line with it as well. And may I seek to offer you some perspective on this as it relates to the evangelical church as well. We're living in a time of tremendous ecumenicism. The Catholic Church is becoming considerably more charismatic in recent years. The Pope is an open communist and a radical. The Evangelical Church has yielded all doctrinal distinctives in order to foster unity. Reformed theology is quickly turning back to Rome and seeking unity with the doctrines of Rome. And many in Islam are actively calling for an Islamic reformation. And that's what I believe is going to happen. Could it be that all of these faith systems are in fact merging into one Merging into something new? Could it be that while Mystery Babylon has existed in any number of forms throughout the generations, what we see in Revelation seventeen eighteen is a fullest form, a grand incarnation, but one which is yet to really be realized, one that is yet to be fully formed? And if this is the case, then it frees us to be as literal as we want with the text. If Babylon does not yet necessarily exist, even in its spiritual form, if there is still to be a merging of a grand political, a grand religious, a grand economic system, all of which will look slightly different than what we see today in some unifying way, then I believe that we should default to be as literal as possible. And if we default to be as literal as possible, then I believe that there is going to be a new city built called Babylon that is going to become the center of this new system. And if we cross-reference this idea with the Babylon of Jeremiah 50, I believe it is the safest and most interpretively sound option that there will be a literal Babylon rebuilt, a city built by the world to become the political, economic, and religious center and to become a symbol of a unified world. To become a symbol of what the world wants to become. Quite literally, they are going to attempt to revive Babel. Perhaps even build a a tower. I don't know. And before I show you the prophetic evidence, let me remind you of the characteristics of the last days. 1 Timothy 4, verses 1 and 3. Now the Spirit speaketh expressly, that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from meats which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. The last days will be characterized by an ever more apostate world, a world where seducing spirits and doctrines of devils take, uh, deceive many, where false demands that run contrary to the liberties of Christ take center stage, And though we will find as we continue that not all the world is on board with any of these systems, we'll see that in Revelation, this has not stopped organizations attempting to unite the disparate people groups under such terms. It's not difficult to imagine a time when people will desire to cede their sovereignty, their power, and their control to a larger body, where nations will desire this. There is, in fact, already a very large portion of people, both in the United States and in Europe, who call for and welcome such interaction, cooperation, and unity. To this end, I do not believe it is beyond the scope of possibility that the world would come to a place where they would decide that Babel, even if they claim not to believe the Bible, is actually the kind of the world they want. The humanity has solved the language gap humanity is breaking down cultural divides the next logical step is to unite the world under a single banner and to forge ahead in a common humanity that will cast off all the things that cause war war—right, tribalistic groupthink and their tribalistic gods and they'll worship the god of forces an all-encompassing, all-accepting god made in our image and after our likeness so now I want to take you to prophecy And what I want to show you is that even in Jeremiah's day, the prophecies of God against Babylon were not necessarily completely fulfilled. That there are promises of God made against the city of Babylon that have yet to take place. And one of the main reasons why we believe that God still has a plan for national Israel is because God has not fulfilled all the promises in the Old Testament. One of the main reasons why we know that there's still an Antichrist to come is because Antiochus Epiphanes did not fulfill all of the prophecies as it relates to the abomination of desolation. And so I would extend that logically to say that we might also characteristically in consistency with our methods of interpretation, believe that there is a Babylon yet to come, in consistency with our belief, if Jeremiah 50 and 51 and the prophecies of Babylon have not yet fully been fulfilled. I hope that makes sense to you. If there are still promises that God made about judgment against Babylon that have yet to be literally fulfilled, then we say there's probably something yet to come. In the same way we say, if there are promises given to Israel that are yet to be literally fulfilled, then Israel still has a place in God's plan. If there are promises about Antichrist that are still yet to be fulfilled, then there's still an Antichrist to come, right? And that's the idea this morning. And let me say this, finally, before we get into the text. There are many who believe Revelation uh, 17 and 18 speak of two distinct Babylons, one religious, one commercial. And I've mentioned before, I do not agree with this, I'm not going to defend all those reasons, as I've said today. I'm going to assume that they're one city, so I'm going to merge the teaching of Revelation 17 and 18 into my teaching in that way. And let's just compare a few passages between Jeremiah 50 and 51 and Revelation 17 and 18. In Jeremiah 51, verse 7, the Bible says, Babylon hath been a golden cup in the Lord's hand that made all the earth drunken. The nations have drunken of her wine, therefore the nations are mad. And then we compare that with what we've learned in Revelation 17. I've already taught it, so I'm not going to read it. You can read it there about um, the Babylon of Revelation 17, that they have made the nations drunk with the wine of their fornication. Both passages speak of the image of a golden cup and, and that, the, that Babylon has made the earth drink and be drunken, the, the nations be drunken and are made mad by her. Jeremiah 51.8 Babylon is suddenly fallen and destroyed howl for her take balm for her pain if so be she may be healed this uh, corresponds to what we saw in Revelation 148 we also see it in Revelation 18 Babylon is fallen is fallen and they speak of the suddenness of her fall. Now what's interesting about this is that historically Babylon, historical Babylon, did not fall suddenly. Historical Babylon was overcome suddenly, right? If you, if you remember back to Daniel, the Medo-Persian Empire overtook her in a night. But she didn't fall. That city lasted for quite some time. The system continued to function for quite some time and broke down gradually. Jeremiah 51 verse 30. The mighty men of Babylon have forborne to fight; they have remained in their holds. Their might hath failed. They become as women. They have burned her dwelling places. Her bars are broken. And then, of course, in Revelation seventeen verse sixteen and eighteen verse eight, we see that uh, the the Babylon of Revelation is to be burned with fire. That both would be burned with fire. Jeremiah fifty verse thirty nine. Therefore, the wild beasts of the desert and the wild beasts, with the wild beasts of the island shall dwell there, and it shall be no more inhabited forever, neither shall it be dwelt in from generation to generation. Revelation 18, verse 21 tells us that the great city Babylon will be thrown down and, and uh, shall be found no more at all. And so once again, we see the idea that um, whatever this, this um, Babylon might be, we see a correspondence there in the prophecies. Jeremiah 51, verses 63 and 64, Thou shalt bind a stone to it, and cast it into the midst of the Euphrates, and thou shalt say, Thus shall Babylon sink, and shall not rise from the evil that I will bring upon her. We spoke about this last week, that Jeremiah took the, prom- the promises against Babylon in Jeremiah fifteen fifty one, and he wrapped that, that scroll ar- around a rock, and he threw that rock in the euphrates river saying that babylon would be no more and we see this imagery repeated in revelation eighteen twenty one, when the mighty angel takes the millstone and casts it into the euphrates river and says babylon is no more and we talked about why it was a millstone last week in jeremiah 51 verse 45 god says my people go out of the midst of her And deliver ye every man his soul from the fierce anger of the Lord. Get away from Babylon. Now, all the way to the time of the New Testament, people were traveling to Babylon because there was a tremendous contingency of Jewish believers in Babylon in the time of the New Testament. Peter spent time there, we find from the Scriptures. And thus we have this idea that there were still many believers in the midst of her, or many Jews, excuse me, in the midst of her. And yet we have this call in Jeremiah 51 because of her destruction to come out from the midst of her. These are things which I haven't really seen fulfilled historically in regard to Babylon. Jeremiah 51 verses 48 and 49. Then the heaven and the earth and all that is therein shall sing for Babylon. And then it goes on to say, So at Babylon shall fall the slain of all the earth revelation 18 verse 20 rejoice over her thou heaven and ye holy apostles and prophets for god hath avenged you on her so in all of these cases i'd say that the similarities of prophecy are pretty strong would you not The legacy of Babylon, the false worship system, has certainly taken many form. Each form has slain the saints of the Most High. Each form has committed the evils of pagan worship. Each form has sought to establish dominance politically, economically, and religiously. But here's the thing. As I would perceive it, the prophecies of Jeremiah 50 and 51 are given to a literal city in a literal location. And while Babylon did indeed fall, it did not fall in the manner that Jeremiah 50 and 51 describes. After Medo-Persia overtook Babylon, it was sudden, as I mentioned, but Cyrus did not destroy the city. In fact, he helped rebuild Babylon. It became the provincial capital of the Persian Empire. The city instead gradually was destroyed over many, many centuries. We're talking uh, uh, half a millennia later and the, and the city is still standing. Furthermore, when Babylon is said to fall, God promises to effectively wipe its memory off of the earth. There's still villages which exist in the ruins of Babylon. Saddam Hussein was, uh, uh, in the 90s, was really uh, pushing the idea of of rebuilding Babylon back to her glory. Of course, uh, he did not stick around long enough to be able to do that. It stands to reckon that there's at least a possibility that the prophecies of Jeremiah 50 and 51 are prophecies that, as we saw in Daniel, where we go from literal and, and contemporary to future and prophetic, As it related to Antichrist, as it relates to Israel, could it not be that in Jeremiah 50 and 51 there is a transition from literal and contemporary to future and prophetic? That this city will once again exist. That there will be a literal city of Babylon that will be literally rebuilt and that will have a literal fall. And while there's any number of good arguments otherwise, that's what I believe we're witnessing in Revelation 17 and 18 lots of other interpretations, lots of other interpretations that have a lot of good arguments. But this is what I see when I read Revelation 17 and 18. This is what I see when I think of Babylon. I believe it's fully consistent with the way the world is going. When you see them creating images of a woman riding a beast in front of their parliament buildings in the EU, when you see the boldness with which they're doing these things, would it be beyond the pale for us to think that they are going to build a city that is a hallmark of a new union? a new diversity uh, unity and diversity idea and that they'd rebuild babylon i don't i don't think that that's beyond the pale and so that's personally what i believe there'll be a rebuilt babylon which will become the apex the climax the fullest realization of the system which began in babel the merging of politics economics and religion to bring about a singular humanity erecting a god in their own image and doing so by uh, in order to declare absolute freedom from the God of creation. Until a man with even greater ambition who leads ten kingdoms will destroy this city and this system, a city and a system which he seemed to support, only then claiming himself to be God, setting up his own economic system with the mark of the beast, setting up his own religious system where he sits on the throne in the temple, setting up his own political system where he rules with this uh, absolute power, By destroying Babylon. By destroying the system that was in place. And if it hasn't become obvious, let let me just conclude by saying... That I believe the legacy of Mystery Babylon is far more important than the identity of the city itself. All the stuff about the identity, all the stuff that's felt a little bit conspiratorial, again, take it or leave it. I want to point everything that we talked about today simply back to what I said last week. Last week I, I made mention in my application that we need to come out from a system that bears the marks of Babylon. Whether you believe anything as it relates to the UN or as it relates to the EU or as it relates to secular humanism and the way they're attempting to use the force of the government to root out competing belief systems or Islam or the Roman Catholic Church or any of those things whether you believe that or not I'm you know whatever but can you see the marks of the system on the culture and the operation of these various entities. And if you can, if you can see just the marks of the system, then when you read in Revelation 18, come out from them and be ye separate, that ye be not partaker of her plagues, that ought to mean something to you today. And that's what I care about. It ought to mean something to you today. It ought to mean something about the seats of power in our culture today. It ought to mean something about the philosophies that we agree with as it relates to, inter, uh, to, to um, politics, as it relates to, to international politics, as it relates to national politics today. It ought to mean something about how we teach our children, about how we live within this culture today. Our calling is not to tear down the halls of power. The unbeliever is going to do what the unbeliever is going to do. But it is our privilege to speak the truth to shine the light to identify the darkness and to stay away from it. And if we say because it is not our duty or our calling to tear down the halls of power that we're going to become friends of the halls of power then we've gone too far. You can follow the will of the Lord as it relates to these things without tearing down the halls of power while simultaneously not yoking yourself to the halls of power. To, to, to the seats of Babylon and culture. And that's the call today. Come out from among them and be ye separate. We have a different rule by which we live. And that's what we're called to do. That is the vein in which we are called to live. We're called to live by the word of God. So let's live by it. And let's not let the philosophies that have characteristically... Um, um, characterize Babel and Babylon and the, all of these systems, for all of these ages, to taint the truths of god 's word in our hearts. Again, my goal is not to make you paranoid, it 's not to make you conspiratorial, but I do want to make you aware. I don't want you to feel out of control. I want you to learn to rest under god 's control. And a part of that is learning to rest under god 's system, under god 's rules under god's word things are becoming more obvious the darkness is becoming more bold people the evil is coming out of the woodworks we can trace this legacy from generation to generation from institution to institution and those who know and love christ we see this legacy the legacy of babylon but we bear a legacy of our own we bear a legacy that has been passed down from generation to generation we stand on the shoulders Of those who have gone before us those who Hebrews 12 says have gone before us that great cloud of witnesses whereby we are called to lay aside the weights and run with patience our race to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to live the light to shine the light to be truth in a world of darkness, to call others out of darkness into the Lord's marvelous light, to reject the lies, to come out from among them and be separate. We remain loyal to the principles of God's word because we remain loyal to a legacy as well. And that legacy goes all the way back to Noah. That legacy goes all the way back to Abel. And we remember that there's coming a day when the saints of God will be avenged upon the institution that has harmed them and hated them and sent them to death. The whole system will crumble. When you see it around you, don't let it get you paranoid. Don't let it make you feel like everything is out of control. Let it turn your heart to the one who will win to be more loyal to the one who has it in his hands, to the one who holds kings, to the one who is above kings, to the one whose legacy is a legacy that will end in victory. That's why we're reading Revelation, because we're reading the end. And God wins. And if you're on God's side, you win too. Right? And as we see Babylon function in any way that it does, all around us, we need to remember... Unbelievers are going to be unbelievers, but God is going to win. So let's get on God's side. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.